session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakun. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. You may have noticed I said I'll be with you for one hour. Usually Wednesday, it's two hours. Today is kind of like a special programming, or as far as my time slot will go. In the second hour, my brother Parham will be interviewing John Ellist, who is a Iranian-American who is running for U.S. Senate. So for that second hour, 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific time, uh, my brother Parham will be interviewing John Ellist, who is running for the U.S. Senate. You can tune into that interview, but I'll be with you in this hour, 12 to 1 p.m. And wanted to start off the show talking about love. I know, kind of cheesy and easy to just say that word, but specific aspects of it, and specifically two elements related to um, romantic relationships in how we express love and feel loved by our partner, because both are important and of course they're related but not necessarily perfectly correlated in the sense that you might think you're expressing a lot of love to your partner but they might not necessarily feel loved by you for a variety of reasons including the ways that you are expressing it so those the two components i wanted to talk about here to uh, kind of demonstrate a point or bring up these examples of related to romantic relationships is the first one is how we feel in the relationship as far as the feeling of being loved and accepted by our partner allowing for us to focus on taking care of them uh, or, and making sure we show them love. So I'll get to that. And then the second one is related to things like love languages and how we express love because that's important. So that first one, this feeling that we have in a relationship that we want to take care of our partner. So of course we have to make sure we're okay, but in any given relationship we can see there can be a difference in the dynamic of how much each individual wants to make sure the other person is okay, how much they have the other person in mind, how much they are taking care of their needs, being aware of their needs versus their own. And what's interesting is we can think, well, shouldn't you be thinking about your partner? That should be regardless of how they treat you, which is, True to a degree, but it's really idealistic because when we create a relationship, what happens is how our partner makes us feel will affect how we want to then make them feel in an iterative type of a dynamic, meaning that what you do affects them, what they do affects you, and then what you've done also affects each other, and it keeps going on and on. Because if you have the feeling that my partner has my best interests in mind, wants to take care of me, and my needs will be met and taken care of in this relationship, it's a lot easier for you to then focus on taking care of them. And so this brings up a type of paradox that we see in a lot of different dynamics that sometimes we need to feel something or get something to no longer need it. So what do I mean by that? For example, we might say, well, don't care what people think, or if you're a professional, don't care about in that 
career, whatever it is, what your colleagues or people say about you or think about you, the esteem that you have. But really what we tend to find is people get that in some way. They get that esteem that they're established in some way. There's some security in who they are professionally. And then they can care less and less. They can care less from the beginning, but really to get to the point where they're almost not caring at all and being so focused internally, they have to get it first. So at times we need to get something to no longer need it. It can be similar to like a drive, let's say like hunger, you get food, you're no longer hungry. In this way, it's more of a lasting type of a, a feeling that once you get some type of an experience or feeling, you can lose that hold it has on you to need it. So once I've gotten that critical acclaim or my colleagues have showed me they believe in me and what I'm doing, what I'm saying, it can be easier to care less about that, which sounds paradoxical, but often tends to be true. And so, so the same thing is true in a relationship that once you establish this sense of being taken care of and cared for, then it's not that you don't care at all, but you can feel a lot better about the relationship, even if something happens you don't like. So for example, if you have had a very strong relationship with your partner, where there's been a lot of love and trust and affection and care and, and all of those things, if your partner does something that isn't so caring or you feel like was hurtful, you're more likely to interpret it that somehow they made a mistake or there's a misunderstanding or something is going on. Just like trust, people will sometimes say we have so much trust in our relationship that you know, if something happens in our relationship or if my partner says something or I heard something, I wouldn't take it to mean they've done something bad. I would assume maybe I'm misunderstanding the situation. But that first has to get established in the relationship. So we need to create a relationship where there is a mutual feeling of care, love, understanding. Very importantly, of course, that you don't want to hurt me or don't hurt me regularly or often, especially in significant or severe ways. Because then that creates the type of a secure attachment and connection in that relationship where you can feel less preoccupied with yourself and your own needs, knowing that they will be met by your partner or through the dynamic of your relationship, yourself and your partner, getting those needs met. Because to focus on loving our partner, we have to feel like we're going to be okay first, or at least we have that confidence that that will be okay. Because the next part I'll get into in showing love to your partner, making sure they feel loved by you, really can only happen if you feel okay too. So there's this mutuality. We're both going to be taking care of each other. We're both going to be loving each other. We both want to make sure that both of us are okay. In that sense, we're our, we are a team. But what you often see is when we don't have that feeling established in a relationship, that the partners can feel like they are almost in competition with each other or more clearly that they have to make sure they're okay. So they're constantly fighting for their own rights and their own feelings and their own needs because they don't feel like their partner will be caring enough about them. And of course, this also is going to relate significantly to what you've gone through in your childhood relationships and what you've went through in your family of how you feel about love, feel loved, relationships, trust, safety, attachment, all those things, of course. But if we're looking at the relationship itself, we can be aware of how much do we feel like we're going to be loving each other and I don't have to worry about you not loving me or not taking care of you. Because once we have that feeling, if it's there, then we can look more clearly at the second aspect that I want to bring up, which is always relevant, but especially 
um, can be clearer if you have that feeling of love and loving in that relationship, which is how am I going to express that love to my partner? And many listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the five love languages, um, a book by Gary Chapman. And the theme or the, the topic there of languages, I think, is actually a good way of putting it because it's just like if I want to tell you something, but it's in a language you don't know, well, then you can't understand it to take it in. So I could be, let's say, saying the nicest thing, or I could be giving you the best advice or a solution to your problem. But if you don't understand that language, you can't take it in. And similarly, we can express love in different ways. But if it's not the way that the partner or the individual we are expressing it to feels love or feels loved, they won't take it in. And so he had five topics or five love languages that he thinks are the main ones, which I'll, I'll go through quickly. They are physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, um, acts of service, and gifts. So they're kind of self-explanatory. Uh, physical touch, some kind of touching. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can be, but also includes non-sexual touch. Words of affirmation or saying positive words, including compliments, also expressions of love through words. Acts of service means doing things for one another, tasks, chores, errands, things around the house, things outside of the house that uh, help the other person. Quality time means, of course, it can mean different things to different people, but time where it's just the two of you or you're doing something together, where it's just about you and the other person spending that time uh, together. And gifts is, of course, gifts, but it's not necessarily big, extravagant gifts. It can be more the thoughtfulness of the gift. You go away and you come back and make sure you got something for the person or out of nowhere, you get them flowers or something small just as a gesture. So it's more the thoughtfulness of it than necessarily how expensive it is or how nice it is. And so if you're listening to that list, there's almost no one who won't like all of them. So it's rare that someone will dislike any of them. What really we're looking at is what are your primary or primary and secondary ways of feeling loved, because that can be important. And so there's a few ways you can try to figure this out. One is there's tests that you can take that, that of course, are not some super validated tests that, you know, you could say this is like a diagnosis of sorts, but it gives you an idea and you can find those online and they might tell you which one of the languages are your primary and secondary and how strong they are. But also you can see this by observing people that usually the ways that people express love are the ways that they would like to be loved. So if someone gives a lot of compliments to a lot of people, it's very likely that they also want to hear those things for them. If someone is very touchy, they probably will like to be touched and hugged and cuddled with too. If they're getting gifts for other people and being thoughtful in that way, they would like that. If they're doing acts of service, they would like that. If they try to focus on quality time, same thing. So you can notice what people do. And also you can notice related to that, especially if you're in a closer relationship, what is it they complain about? So they will at times tell you, you know, why don't you do this more? Why don't you do this enough or more for me? That's how I will feel loved. And so you'll see couples where they can be so confused because they will feel like they're showing so much love to their partner but their partner might not feel loved by them because it's not in that language that means something to them. 
So it can be quite fascinating because you'll see a couple where they'll say, well, how can you think I don't love you? I tell you all the time and I tell you how beautiful you are and how wonderful you are and how great you are. And the other person will say, yeah, but that doesn't mean anything to me. I need you to do, you never want to spend time with me. And so because that quality time is not there, that individual might not feel loved by their partner. So the love has to be in a way or language that fits that person for them to be able to internalize it. If it's not, they're not going to feel loved by you. So we have to be aware of what we're doing here, that if I want my partner to feel loved, it means it has to be in a way that they feel loved, not in a way that I think is loving for me to express. And so this is why it's so critical to ask our partner and to communicate to understand this better. Now, the thing is, it's not just like we're picking different types of cuisine of what our you know, partner is going to like to eat or have. At times, things are more comfortable and more uncomfortable for us. So for some people, the quality time might be hard, that type of intimacy of sitting with someone or staring at them or creating that emotional intimacy. For some people, the vulnerability of expressing the words might be difficult to be vulnerable in that way. I'm reminded of, it's probably more of a joke, I don't know if it's ever actually been said in this clear of a way, but um, you'll hear the stories where usually men who might have a harder time with verbal vulnerability and vulnerability in general, uh, the wife might say, well, you never tell me I love you. And the husband says, well, on our wedding day, I said I love you, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. So it's this notion that I've told you and that's enough. And I, it's hard enough for me to say, basically, they might not say that part. But that I'll, if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. But of course, uh, we want to feel that love repeatedly. And even in that book, Gary Chapman talks about love tanks. How full is your love tank? So it's not, I, well, I said I love you five years ago or last week even. You might need to hear it every day or hear those nice words every day to keep your love tank full to feel loved in that way. So we want to try to understand what makes our partner feel loved to make sure we're, we're doing that. And if we have the type of relationship I'm talking about earlier where we feel this mutuality, secure attachment, connection, my partner wants to make sure my needs are met, we can get to an ideal that I think is important where we are striving to make sure our partner feels loved. But if we don't feel like we're getting loved enough in return, it creates this almost competition or this feeling of I have to not give too much love because I'm not getting love. The ideal type of relationship is we're focused so much on how much we're loving our partner because we feel secure in them loving us and showing us that love, that when we go to bed each night, we can even reflect on, did I make my partner feel loved today? And can I do something tomorrow to make them feel even more loved? So it's my duty to make my partner feel loved. But unfortunately, when we get into this me versus you feeling, it's almost like, no, I don't want to give too much because they didn't give to me. Or why should I do all this if they're not going to put that same effort in? Or I already do enough already. What more could they want? That's unfortunately where we end up a lot of the times. But if we create that underlying relationship where the love seems like it's so much there that I know I'm going to be taken care of, of course, not perfectly because that's not possible, but that the desire is there, the feeling is there, the security is there. We can get to that ideal that I think we should all strive towards, that every night we go to bed thinking, did I love my partner enough? And how can I make sure they feel more loved by me? All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, yes, 
Thank you, doctor, for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, uh, yeah, we're um, making a decision, and uh, we'd like to get your advice on it. Okay. So the, basically, uh, we're planning to send our 17-year-old daughter to a one-week summer program to university in Texas mm-hmm. on her own, okay. which we think is going to be good for um, her independence and all that. And the university will provide room, board, and everything, and she'll be mingling with about uh, 80 other students. So we think it's going to be good for her growth. And uh, But what we're struggling with is her commute back and forth from university to the airport. And uh, I called up a few taxi companies in uh, Texas, and I get, like, conflict- conflicting answers. You know, some say, no, they don't give a ride to minors. Some say if they're old enough to travel by themselves, then it's okay and all that. So we're thinking, should one of us to go with her? And if we do, then it kind of defeats the purpose of mm-hmm. her dealing with stuff on her own. So I'd like to know what your opinion is. Sure. Um, and you said she's how old? Seventeen. Seventeen. Okay. Well, there's a few things I think are important. Of course, one is to make sure she's involved with the decision making every step of the way. Um, in general, I think that's good. But also, if we're um, helping her with independence, we want to make sure she's getting to make a choice as well. I don't know actually the laws about you know Uber, Lyft, these types of rideshare apps, and what age is the minimum age. Um, I think I'd feel confident of her getting to the airport and back, uh, and even you can contact the camp, I'm sure they'll tell you something or the school about that, especially leaving the airport, going from the school to the airport back, I mean, it's pretty easy, she can just get one of these um, rideshare apps and and go back and forth. Tell me about, I mean, I could obviously think of some things that might come to a parent's mind. What are the things you are worried about? So, because she does have a little bit of a social anxiety mm-hmm. where, you know, she doesn't commute with people very freely. You know, for example, if she gets stuck, she would then, uh, she may not go to a cop to ask some advice or where to go and all that kind of stuff. So, that's the kind of thing that bothers me a little bit. Mm-hmm. But... She's okay with friends and uh, families, but when it comes to, like, you know, uh, dealing with uh, other people, she has to have good enough reason to approach other people to get help. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I'm a little concerned that she may not be able to handle herself. And uh, with her being alone there, um, it would be hard for us to get her any help uh, remotely, you know? Sure, and and really, you're saying the main thing is getting to the school and back when where where she lands. That's the main it's thing you're worried exactly, about. Yeah, exactly. That's the only thing. And the school doesn't provide any information in terms of, and they don't suggest anything at all. Okay. Now, the camp itself is she wanting to go? Did she express she'd like to go do this? Uh, yeah, she she's okay with it. You know, the, she's okay with it. Uh, you know, we asked her. She, she was involved in decision making process, and she's okay with it. You know, we told her that you're gonna be on your own. She said, "Yeah, okay, I can do that." You know. Okay. Uh, so That's good. The, yeah, it all all looks good, but 
uh, am only concerned about this commute back and forth. Is, is she concerned about the commute? No, I'm, I'm not trying to inject that in her. <laughs> Good. Yeah, and you don't need to. This is, you know, it's an interesting thing where there's a couple different thoughts I wanted to share with you. But that's one of them is that, you know, at times because we know our child, well, first of all, we might have our own anxiety, obviously. But if you know your child is anxious, you sometimes might anticipate what might make them anxious. But by doing that, you might make them more anxious. Like, oh, this thing is going to happen that you might not like. And then now it makes them think. Um, yeah. they're not going to, you know, that they should be anxious about it. So I, I think that's right. We don't want to make her more anxious. I'm not so concerned about it. You know, usually uh, wherever she's landing, you know, just tell her, you know, we could go over things with her, help her with the process. Like you ask someone, where are the ride share? Let's say, you know, she could take a taxi too, or where are the ride ride share um, apps or, uh, you know, the location. And they'll tell them, oh, you go here. And then, you know, you get that. Has she ever gotten an Uber or Lyft or one of these things on her own? No, I think based on what I read, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft, they have, uh, like, uh, they cannot ride, uh, give a ride to minors. Okay, again, I'm not sure about that. I know, you know, there's obviously the law and what people do. I've heard a lot of people doing that with their teenagers. I don't know if that's the right thing or appropriate. So I'm not saying do something that is uh, not with their laws or regulations. Getting even a taxi is not that difficult either at most airports. Right. Um, you know, so I think... My my guess is I wouldn't want this reason not for her to go. And yeah, for you or, you know, a, a parent to go with her, I think would be extra or a little bit too much just for this part of it, for her to get there and back. Especially, as you mentioned, one of the things you're trying to instill is some more independence or confidence in herself to handle these situations. I, so I think yeah. we want to help her do it on her own. And, I, mm -hmm. you know, you can mention and not in this, okay, here's this big deal that we need to talk about your commute to and from the airport but that this is one aspect that we have to figure out and let's see you know you could talk to her about it and see her thoughts about what's going on and help her create you know either a plan or some ideas of how to handle it but being very mm -hmm. mindful not to as you said inject this okay this is a this is some huge thing that's about to happen we need to talk about it but as just one of the many steps of okay yeah when this happens what do you want to do you know how do you want to handle this part uh, come up with that plan all together because the other thing I wanted to mention, which is always the case, well, in general, we always are trying to encourage our kids to grow, so we have to make them uncomfortable at times, but especially with anxiety or social anxiety, it's finding this balance that we obviously don't want to just throw them into the fire and say, okay, well, good luck, but we also can't protect them too much from it and take them away because they need to be able to face that heat in order to grow. So that balance yeah. is hard. I, I work with families and they say, my child, every... He has social anxiety. Every time there's a birthday party, even though he has fun, when we say it's, you know, his friend's birthday party, he says, I don't want to go. And so it's tough because we don't want to say, no, you have to go. And we also don't want to say, no, you def okay, you don't have to go forget about it. But we want to work with the child to encourage them to get more comfortable to go. And only once they, you know, they agree to let them go through that so they experience that, okay, I can do this. So you're in you know, a similar position. It seems like she wants to go to this camp. Um, we don't want to make her feel more anxious about it. I, I get the sure. sense it's going to be fine, and she's going to okay. get there and, and, and be okay. What's your own, you know, would you describe yourself as an anxious person? Yes, the other question that I was going to ask you is uh, social anxiety or uh, being anxious is uh, genetic? Because I do have some of this stuff that, mm -hmm. I, that I see in her that I had in, in myself, and I, I may still have it too. Yeah. So 
is it genetic by well, any chance? Definitely, you know, there's there's uh, almost nothing that we experience that doesn't have a genetic component to it, and almost no major psychological issue doesn't have a, a big part of it that has genetics involved. And always the thing that happens with these things, especially something like anxiety, is there's a genetic component for sure that you get from your parents, but then mm-hmm. you're also living in an environment created by your parents that if they have anxiety will also make you more anxious too. So it's always going to be difficult to tease apart nature and nurture, and we know it's always going to be both. It's not one or the other. But if you and your partner are also slightly anxious, your daughter got the anxious genes or some level of disposition to anxiety, and then you're going to create a more anxious environment or even things you say, things that happen will contribute to that as well. So it's there. The good news is you're saying you yourself had some of these things when you were younger, but it seems like you're okay. And I say that so you don't think, oh, my child has anxiety, something really bad is going on. She can Mm -hmm. live, survive, and thrive with this anxiety. And that's what we're going to try to help her do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At times I uh, tell myself, if worse comes to worse, she gets stuck. I can always fly over and help her. You know, that's really... Yeah. uh, well, that's yeah. and that's for your. I hope you don't tell her. I mean, well, you can tell her that if she starts showing you, she's freaking out and worried about it. But that's not. I don't think that's going to be necessary at all. You know, I, I trust that she will uh, find her way there. You can talk about it. I think, as I said, see how she's doing. If she's totally okay, it's fine. But you can go through the different steps of okay. Has she ever flown by herself before? Uh, no, no. Okay. No. So that's you know, there's yeah. a lot of this is good. These are going to be some experiences for her to have that will help her recognize her own strength and ability to handle things and face things. So I think it can make sense to walk through with her the process of what's going on. Again, being very mindful when you have this conversation that you're being calm in this, because even if you don't say anything explicitly, she's going to pick up on your anxiety. Okay, but you know, when you get there, you know, you know, if you're talking in that way, she's going to feel like, oh, like it's so scary when I land. So you want to have this feeling, look, she's going to figure out she gets there. There's like five different ways she can get to this place. So many different ways. There's probably buses, there's, you know, taxis, there's this. There's going to be a lot of ways. And I even think the ride shares probably are an option. Again, uh, I I don't want to endorse that if it's something you legally can't do, but I would look into those issues. If that's the case, that she can take an Uber or Lyft, you know, Uh something you can try is she does that in your hometown. You know, she takes Uh an Uber somewhere and back just so she says, okay, I know how to use the app. I know how to you know, do it. It's not scary. It's okay. I get in the car. You know, they track everything. There's not much to be worried about. So if that's an option, she can do that or the taxi. Again, if it seems like she wants that, I wouldn't put this thing of making it such a big deal, but you could say, why don't you want to try this to see how that goes? If it seems like that's one aspect that might be a challenge, like, okay, we can give, why not give this a try? And so bigger picture, we also have to look at not just this situation, but how are we right. encouraging her in general to face things, to recognize her own strength and her own right. ability to face things in life as she gets right. older more and more, she's going to have to do those things. So um, your challenge will be because you can feel your own anxiety of giving her that space to to face those discomforts, not knowing what's going to happen sometimes. We can't say for sure nothing is going to happen, but right. that's part of life is we can't control it all, but we have to face it anyway. So you're going to have to more and more give her that feeling that you trust that it's going to be okay even if every moment doesn't feel okay you know yeah yeah the confidence that i have is she's very observant you know throughout the years that we went on vacation Mm -hmm. she's been watching every step and all that kind of stuff so i know she can 
probably figure things out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that gives me a little bit of a confidence. Sure. You know, people yeah. who are anxious notice things more usually because, in a way, anxiety is thinking of and worry can be about the things that can go wrong. So for better or for worse, oftentimes people are more observant if they're a bit anxious because they notice everything, they're a little more vigilant. So she likely has picked up on a lot more. And as she's getting older, we're going to let her express that she can handle those things on her own. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay, thank you very much My for pleasure. taking the time. Nice talking to you. You know, I was going to say I hope it all goes well, but I'm sure it will all go well. So best yeah. of luck to her and, and look forward. If you ever want to call back and let me know how it went, I'd be happy to hear about it. Okay, thank you very much. All right, nice Bye-bye. talking to you. Take care. All right, let's go to commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, to conclude my time on the show today, I wanted to follow up on what came up with that father in the previous segment, not specifically to their issues, but the themes that came up uh, that I alluded to but wanted to follow up a bit more when we're dealing with our children, especially with anxiety, because it can be a very difficult thing to navigate. It's very easy to say, help them feel calm, do certain things, but we have to be mindful of how we communicate with them to empathize, but not energize. I don't know if that really makes sense. Their anxiety in the sense that we understand that they're worried, but at times we might empathize in a way that energizes it, meaning it exaggerates or amplifies the anxiety. So if you know your child doesn't like going to parties. You know, you're going to that party and you know I get that you don't like parties. And so it's like, you're going to be, you're going to be okay. What are, what are you going to do? What do you want to do? You might add to their feeling of anxiety rather than the empathy helping them feel more calm. And so a general approach as a parent that you have, um, when we think of uh, the term like a container or being an emotional container, like a Winnicott type of a term of how do you hold that feeling or feelings for your child, which is what you generally are asked to do. So your child is sad and you empathize. So let's say your child falls and is crying. You pick them up and you empathize in the sense that I get that this is sad. So you even might even show it. You feel it a bit, right? We, you know, we kind of know how parents are like, oh, you fell on the floor. There's a way of showing this. I feel kind of sad. This is not good. But it's in a contained way, right? You can't just break down and say, I want to show you how much I care about that you fell. So I'm going to fall over myself and cry and hit myself. And actually, at times, uh, Persian parents can do that. They think that in general, in Persian culture, as in all cultures, but we see it the way we exaggerate our reaction to something shows that we care so much, right? So, you know, we even do things like we hit ourselves, like when we're sad or worried, even sometimes when we love someone, we can do it for lots of reasons, but you hit yourself to show how much it's hurting you. And there can be the sense that we have to exaggerate how much we are um, in pain because that shows how much I love you. And so this is trying to send a message, which underneath we can say, well, that's nice to show you care, but we can see that it's more about us than them or more how we're seen by other people than the actual experience we have with someone else. Because if you are hurt yourself, you don't want the doctor to come to you and start yelling and screaming about how horrible this is. You need the doctor to be able to notice the situation, take it seriously, but also have the composure and the calmness to handle the situation. And so in an emotional way, we want to respond the same way. We see that something's going on, you're in pain, but I can handle that pain myself. I'm okay. So you can have faith in me and confidence in me to be there for you. 
And also, I have faith that you're going to get better. I have that hope, not just blind faith, but this understanding that you'll be okay. Sometimes we even say that, and sometimes we also show that by how we feel, because it's not some crisis and we're like, oh my God, you're crying. This is so bad. What's going to happen? No, we're showing, oh no, you don't feel good, but it's going to get better. And I'm also going to help you to feel better. So it's not just I abandon you and let you try to feel better. I'm there for you. So we have to have that ability to contain it. So when your child is anxious, you can understand it without adding more to that feeling. So I know this is, it makes you uncomfortable and not dismiss, oh, what are you worried about? Nothing's going to happen. Why do you make things a big deal? But not also, oh my God, you're right. This is so scary. You should be scared. So there's somewhere in between of a, I understand you're worried or I know in other times you haven't felt comfortable in these situations. I, I, yeah, I know that this is not the type of thing you like or makes you anxious. So you get it. You're there. You empathize, but in a way that shows that you feel like it's going to be okay which can be an interesting balance because you're not invalidating by saying it's not bad at all, but you're also not saying it is really a bad thing. You're finding some kind of middle ground that hopefully will help create actually an equilibrium, some kind of a calmness rather than pushing in either direction. And as I mentioned to that father, what's always tough for parents in these situations is, well, what do I do? Do I not let my child worry about the things or uh, prevent them or stop them from having to do the things that make them anxious, or do I force them to do it anyway? And I generally don't like the word force uh, as a way of dealing with things. Encourage, support, those types of things, yes, because we have to, again, find a middle ground. We don't just say you have to do it no matter what, throw them into the fire, as I said with him, or force them to go or feel like they have no say in it. Um, Or we don't also say, oh, you don't like, you don't have to do it. You never have to do something you don't like to do. Because the first one, when we force them, when we look at anxiety, a big part of anxiety deals with not feeling in control, not knowing what's going to happen, not feeling like we can control what's going to happen, and that freaks us out. So if we then make the child feel out of control about the things that make them feel anxious, it likely won't help them. So you have to do this and you have no choice in it. You have no say or control over it. That's not going to help them. But on the other hand, if they're anxious about something, let's say the example I use going to friends' birthday parties, friend's birthday party and we say you don't have to go what it unfortunately will do is it reinforces how scary that thing is that they are scared of this is the challenging point because what happens with phobias anxieties fears when we avoid the thing we are anxious about or fearful of phobic of it amplifies that thing over time because it makes it feel like that thing is scary And each time we approach that thing and we go away, that relief reinforces it. So you're afraid of going into the dark. It becomes dark. You run away. That relief, I'm okay now, unfortunately reinforces the fear that that the dark is a very scary thing. So, oh, going to the birthday parties, it makes me nervous when they invite me. My parents say I don't have to go. Oh, that relief. It feels so good. I get addicted to that feeling of relief and also feel like the thing I was afraid of is really a big deal. It's really scary. And we know that no matter what your age is, the only way we get over a fear is by facing it. The only way out is through. The only way we can recognize that the thing we think is so scary isn't is to experience it and see that it might not even be pleasant. It might be even actually pleasant, but it could be unpleasant, but still we can handle it. It's not that scary. And so with your child, for example, you know, oftentimes parents will tell me, I don't get it. My kid is anxious, but once they go and settle in, they have a great time every time. And then the next time they don't want to go again and they have a hard time understanding this. But that's how anxiety can work 
in a lot of different areas of life where the thing we're anxious about, we might actually even like once we're there and we do it, but getting there or the thought of it can make us feel overwhelmed. And this is where your child will need your support. So um, a lot of us will avoid things that once we do it, we feel good about working out, doing reading, doing something like that that's good for us. We might prevent ourselves from doing it for a variety of reasons. Once we do it, we enjoy it. So that could be another way of empathizing that just because my kid likes it or had a good time last time doesn't mean they're going to jump at the next opportunity. They could still have anxiety about the whole process, about the whole idea of going there or the idea of something new. Even though they went to that party, what's this one going to be like? And we want to be empathic and supportive of that process too. Now, we might even use that previous evidence as support for encouraging them. So your child says, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to go to that party Sunday. No, I don't want to go. I'm staying home. And so you can respond saying, I understand it makes you nervous when you think about going to these parties. But I'm thinking, remember last week or whenever it was, two weeks ago, you went to so-and-so's birthday. And I remember you were so nervous, but then you, you got the courage to go. You finally said you were going to go, and we went together and walked in. And then I remember you had seemed like you had a really good time, right? And they might say yes. And well, maybe this time, do you think it could be like that time too? And see what they say. And you explore it with them. You see what they're feeling. Another thing is a child that's socially anxious tends to be slower to warm. So that's okay that you can even say, you know, you're going to go there. And at the beginning, you might look around or you might want to be quiet. That's fine. Do whatever feels right to you. And then you slowly warm up and engage. So uh, I kind of talked with the, the father about this, but if the child expresses the anxiety that hadn't happened yet, you can try to come up with some type of plan, strategies, techniques to help them through the process. Okay, so what do you think you want to do if you're feeling anxious? Um, well, maybe I'll go find my one friend that I know and stand next to them and, and maybe that'll make me feel better. Oh, that's a good idea. Or here, you want to take something with you that you can play with at first or show to someone that makes you more comfortable. So you explore different ways to help them. So again, we're not saying you don't have to do it or you have to do it. We're finding ways to encourage them. Now, if we're real with ourselves, we know that our bias or our goal or our intention is to get them there because we know that for them to face the anxiety is going to be good for them. So we will approach it with them that we're not going to force them, but it's pretty clear and they might even know, but that our bias is towards getting them there, which is the truth. Now, it doesn't mean every time. They don't have to go every single time and face their anxiety every time. You can get overwhelmed, and sometimes you really do need a break or need to take that one off or take that day off too. And we want to be uh, aware of that flexibility, that it's not that, okay, well, I have to get them to every birthday party every time. They, they might miss one or they might miss a few. That can be okay. We want to still know that our goal is to encourage them to go, but we're not going to force them to go or think that it has to be perfect either. So we encourage them, support them, make them feel as much as we can understood, make them know that while they're there, we'll be there with them emotionally in some way, even if we're not physically there, and afterwards, we'll be there to help them and that it's going to be okay. But we really can play a big part in helping our child recognize that what they are anxious about is not that scary. And the other thing, I think the father did a great job of being aware of his own anxiety because that can play a big part in how we respond because we can make the thing a bigger deal than it is because of what we're afraid of, what we're anxious about. And parents have to be so careful about that. One, about things they're anxious about that will project, well, oh, isn't it, are, are you going to be afraid of what kids say? Or if you're sitting alone, maybe the child is 
okay with that. And also because of our own child's anxiety, we might feel anxious for them of what's going to happen or how are they going to do. And I actually thought he did a good job of saying, I don't want to interject that onto her, put that, inject that onto her, this anxiety I have about her commuting to and from um, where she was going, because I don't want to make her feel worse or make her feel anxious. And I think that's very important. We don't want to make the person more anxious than they already are. So here we see again one of these uh, major themes of, as a parent, how do I encourage my child to feel the pain and discomfort that leads to growth and prevent the ones that are damaged, but make sure I don't avoid allowing them to face those things that make them feel uncomfortable, that might make them not feel okay, that might make them feel anxious, that it's okay if they feel anxious, they'll be okay, but if I want to help them grow, to help them become stronger, I need to push them to do that. Unfortunately, parents will often feel like, well, I, I don't want my kid to hurt, so I'll allow them to not do any of the things that make them anxious. But what you're going to unfortunately do is make them feel more afraid of the world and less confident in themselves, that they are not able to face the things that make them afraid, that they are not a, a, able to face much, and that they have to avoid a lot of life because of that. And unfortunately, they'll slowly internalize that message and think, I can't do those things. And so we want to help them recognize I'm stronger than I think. Essentially, all of us are because we have fears and anxieties no matter who you are. And really, we can see we're all stronger than we think we are. And one of the things you want to help your child recognize is how much strength they have that they are not aware of, how much they are capable of that they are not aware of, but slowly allow them to experience and face that as they face life and face things that come their way. All right, so we're getting to the end of the hour here. And as I mentioned, this is going to be the end of me uh, on the show or this program of the show. After the break, my brother Parham will be interviewing uh, John Ellis, who is an Iranian-American who is running for the U.S. Senate. I believe that there's an upcoming election. So you can listen to their interview after the break. John Ellis running for U.S. Senate with my brother Parham. Uh, that'll be the end for me for today. I'll be with you again Monday night at 8 p.m. Look forward to speaking with you then. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.